Good afternoon. We're in Mark chapter 14 today. You'll notice that we skipped a lot of our normal parts of our service to get to the sermon faster. We're going to incorporate in the sermon today scripture reading, just like they would have during the Last Supper, during a Hebrew, a Jewish celebration of the Passover meal, and also prayer, and the actual taking of the Lord's Supper will be today during the Lord's Supper. So I'm going to come forward here and take this. We arrive in our, our sermon series through the Gospel of Mark to chapter 14. And in particular, our text today is, is verses 12 through 31. And the sermon title for today is the good news meal, or the gospel meal. So I want to ask you a question. How important is eating together in your family or in your culture? Is that an important part of your culture, to break bread with people and to open up your home and fellowship? I think in our modern culture, it's less and less a, a part of welcome um, but if you grew up in a, in a family that really valued meals together, then you grew up in a family that had a type of closeness that humans have been experiencing for the last 6,000 years. So meals together are the essence of what it means to receive one another and to be at peace with one another. A wonderful thing about the gospel is that it's centered around an invitation to a meal. So, um, to give you some context, if you've not been here, we're talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's what Mark starts off his message with in Mark chapter 1 and verse 1. And by the time we get to the end, it's culminating in, an, in a meal and an invitation. To that meal. It's Thursday night of Holy Week. Jesus has entered Jerusalem. He's been spending each day in Jerusalem and each night in Bethany. And this night they're celebrating with his disciples the Passover. Honestly, as a pastor or preacher, when I come to this, some passages I come to, I feel like they're just too big and too heavy for me, too important for me to, in my smallness, to get across the importance of them. Um, but since the Lord put me here to do that, I'll do my best and trust the Holy Spirit to do the rest. This meal that we share once a week, Dina asked me today, why do we do it once a week? And the reason that I could give her is that we do it once a week. Some people do it once a month. The church I grew up in did it once a quarter. Um, I have one friend in Germany, and he does it every day between him and the Lord and his family. He takes the Lord's Supper. He says he needs extra grace. This meal is known by a number of different names. One is the Lord's Supper because he is the one who gave it to us. Another name is communion because it establishes the communion among believers, our common meal that we share together. Another name of it is from the Greek, the Eucharist. It comes from Eucharisti, Eucharisti, which means Thanksgiving. And so the Eucharist is 
Some people just call the bread the Eucharist, but this term of Eucharist meant the Thanksgiving, and it incorporated the whole meal. In the first century, they called this the agape love meal, or the agape meal, the, how God communicated his love to us. The meal has been often misunderstood. Um, our sermon series is called The Gospel Under Nero, because the people who would have been first reading the gospel that Mark wrote were Christians living in the Roman Empire under the rule of the Emperor Nero. During those days, they, um, let's say, misunderstood a number of things about Christians, and they had three main accusations for which Christians were persecuted in the Roman Empire. The first was atheism. They said that Christians are atheists because they don't offer worship and pray to the gods, so they're atheists. They don't believe in the Roman gods, so they must be unbelievers. A second thing they would say is that they practice incest because they call one another brother and sister, yet they marry one another and have children together, so they must be some incestual group of people. Neither one of those accusations were obviously true. But a third one had to do with the Lord's Supper, and they said that Christians are cannibals because they eat the, the body of Christ and drink his blood. For that reason, um, Alex will show you a picture. You can't see this very well, probably, because of the lighting in the room. But this is some of the early Christian catacombs in the caves in Asia Minor, where Christians would hide to take the Lord's Supper because there was such a stigma about taking the bread and the wine as part of the Lord's Supper that they would do it in hiding and sometimes even in caves and underground, literally underground. So we took our kids years ago to this area of Turkey called Cappadocia, where Christians would sometimes hide from their persecutors. And so they found drawings of the Lord's Supper, bread and wine being shared around a table, with words like the Eucharist or agape, you can see that in the top left, the agape meal is what they called this, because the Roman society did not understand what this was, and it brought a lot of persecution. Christians in the first few centuries often died to take this Lord's Supper together with their brothers and sisters. Still today, we lived, uh, my family lived in Morocco for 10 years, and it, in the common religion there in North Africa, a meal is not central to worship. So this was a very strange and foreign thing to them that we had to describe and explain. So if you're not a Christian, or if you're not from a Christian background, then this will be an opportunity for us to explain to you why we take bread and wine or grape juice um, when we share the Lord's Supper. This has also been misunderstood among Christians. However, um, it's, it's been a few hundred years since the idea of transubstantiation took hold in the uh, Christian church, which believed that the bread and the wine became the actual body and blood of Christ, meaning that when you take it, you actually take or eat his body, or you, it's a means of grace whereby receiving it, you receive grace. Um, we're going to see in this passage, and all of the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all spoke about the Lord's Supper, as well as Paul in 1 Corinthians and Acts, 
Luke and Acts, talked about the Lord's Supper as a memorial, as something that we do to point to Christ, to remember Christ. Um, so this is a thing that's been very much misunderstood. We take it once a week, and we don't have a lot of time every week to give a lot of explanation for it. So we're going to take extra time looking into the Lord's Supper today in Mark chapter 14. What I find so significant about a meal that we take together as Christians is that, did you ever think that the Bible starts off with a meal? God created heaven and earth. He created man and woman. And what does he say in Genesis chapter 1? That he created all the trees and all of their fruits to be food for a man and for his wife. And he told them, eat of everything that I've made for you, except for the one tree. Then the end of the Bible, Revelation 19, the Bible ends with a meal called the marriage supper of the Lamb, where all of those who have been washed in the blood of the Lamb are invited to this final meal. And each step of our fellowship with God is typified by an invitation to a meal. And this is what we call the Lord's Supper. So we're going to have five, see this in five different points today. The first is the preparation for the meal, and we'll see that in verse 12. And then the last Passover. So the last Passover that happened in verse 17. And then two groups of people that were sitting at the table, the betrayer and the weak, the other disciples, and how they were invited to eat and what distinction were made. And then finally, the first Lord's meal. So the very first of the Lord's Supper. We're going to see that today. So I'm going to start with the preparation for the meal. If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to go with me to verse 12 of Mark chapter 14. Now, we're going to read just verses 12 through 16 together. So the Bible says, And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go? and prepare for you to eat the Passover. And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready there prepare for us. And the disciples set out, and went to the city and found it just as he had told them and they prepared the Passover and when it was evening he came with the twelve so this word unleavened bread and then Passover are repeated and they're not things that are common in our culture so quickly what was the Passover meal in those days um, the Passover was called the Pasach it was a Hebrew word um, that we've brought into English to because it literally meant to pass over. It comes from Exodus chapter 12, and if you've never read the Old Testament, um, I encourage you to do that. All of the Bible, all the New Testament is rooted and founded on top of and built on top of the foundation of the Old Testament. So in Exodus 12, as God was bringing his people out of Egypt, the last of the 10 plagues was going to be the death of the oldest son, of every family. And each family, God told of the Hebrew people, were supposed to kill a lamb on 
the 14th of Nisan, which was the first month in the Jewish calendar. And on that day, they were four days before the 14th, so on the 10th of Nisan, they were supposed to buy a lamb and take it home. And during those four days was approving to see if this lamb, one year old, was without blemish and was worthy to be the lamb that would cover for this family. So on the 14th at twilight, so as the sun went down, they were supposed to have sacri- they were supposed to start eating this lamb. So on the day of the 14th, they were to sacrifice the lamb. They were supposed to burn certain parts of it, and the rest of it they were supposed to cook with fire. That night, starting at twilight until midnight, they were supposed to eat it all, this one family. They weren't supposed to leave any of it. In fact, they were supposed to eat it standing with their belt on and their shoes on and their coat on as if they were ready to go. And for hundreds of years in the Jewish culture, this is how they celebrated the Passover, standing, not sitting, and as if they were ready to walk out of Egypt that very same day. God said in Exodus 12 that this feast should be celebrated every year as a memorial to how God delivered his people. So in Exodus 12, 13 through 14, in particular, if you want to look at it, he says, every year, forever, your people should eat this meal on this night and for seven days eat bread without leaven. So we have bread here today that's without leaven. Leaven typified sin, and it was supposed to be a meal without leaven to, to commemorate its holiness unto God. And so this was the original meal. A couple thousand years later, as Jesus was talking to his disciples about celebrating the Passover, he tells two of his disciples, the Gospel of Luke tells us that it was John and Peter. And he says, go into Jerusalem. So they're in Bethany, a town outside of Jerusalem. And he says, go into Jerusalem. And he tells them what they're supposed to do there. He says, you're going to find a man carrying a water pot. This was unusual in those days. You'd usually see a woman, that was their job, carrying the water pots. Don't ask me why, but it was in the culture. And he said, you'll see a man carrying the water pots, or carrying a water pot. You're supposed to follow him. Go to the house that he goes into, and when he enters, speak to the master of the house and say, the teacher needs a room to celebrate the Passover. So the city in Jerusalem at that time would have gone from 50,000 people to a quarter of a million people in population. All of the Galileans from the north came down to celebrate this Passover. And on the night of the 14th, all of the Galileans that had come from that region would be sacrificing their lamb. The Judean Jews would sacrifice the next day and the Galileans on the 14th. So there they were supposed to find a man. He said that the teacher needs it. Jesus had become so famous by that time that just to refer to the teacher was something that they understood who they were speaking about. And so they spoke and they, to this, the master of the house, and they found a place for them to do it in an upper room. Now, most of the homes in Jerusalem at that time were one story and were from poor families who couldn't build a structure strong enough to have a second room on top. So this was a wealthier family, and they had an upper room, and the Bible says it was furnished. So the furnishings in that day would have been a table lower to the ground, so our, our friends from 
Syria possibly eat at tables that are lower to the ground. I'm not sure. I have Kurdish friends that eat at tables that are lower to the ground. And they would sit around the table with their feet backwards and their heads forward. It doesn't sound very comfortable to me, but I guess if you get used to it, you can do it. And they would recline at the meal. And Jesus told them, if you look in verse 15, he says, prepare for us the Passover. In verse 16, it says that they found everything just like Jesus said. And in verse 16, it says, and they prepared the Passover. Some people have noted that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, none of them mention the eating of the lamb. Um, and some have said, well, there wasn't a lamb because Jesus would have, was going to be the lamb. This word Passover, it says they prepared the Passover. The word Passover was synonymous for the word for the lamb. You called the lamb the Passover. So as they prepared the Passover, I believe they prepared that lamb. The, the gospel writers don't tell us that, but I think we can assume that that day they had been doing the work of, of preparing that lamb. So they would have taken the lamb to the priest in the temple. The priest would have made the sacrifice and burned the parts that, weren't for, that were supposed to be burnt and have taken the rest of the lamb back to the house where they would have cooked it. So in verse 17 it says, And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. So if you could imagine with me Jesus coming from Bethany, so this is a town five miles away, and they walk through the um, villages between Bethany. There was mostly just what you would call um, Beria, I don't know the word in it, wilderness, between Bethany and Jerusalem. And they, they waited till evening, possibly because Jesus was sought after, they were trying to kill him, and he came with the other ten disciples at night. So at twilight, probably at dusk or just after dusk, they entered Jerusalem and came to that room that had been prepared for them. So if you put yourself in that situation, they have the bread there, they have the lamb, they have bitter herbs that were prepared that were supposed to be part of the Passover. If you've ever celebrated a Seder meal, then you know the elements that are involved in that. The bitter herbs represented slavery and the bitterness of slavery that God had brought them out of. Jesus entered with his disciples, and you could, I can imagine as they walk through Jerusalem, you smell the smell of the blood of the lambs that one for each family. If you've been during the Eid al-Kabir in parts of North Africa or the Middle East, it's a particular smell as the lamb's head has been burned and the, some of the wool has been burned. You smell that. You smell the blood that is fresh that's been running through the gutters of the streets and also probably down into the Kidron Valley from all the gutters as they came together. And the sounds, it was probably very quiet as all the families had begun to gather for dusk for food. Those people that were involved in the cooking of the meal were in their kitchens while those who would be preparing the tables would be sitting around the table and preparing it. It was a holy time, not a time for kids to play and to goof off, so there wasn't any soccer in the streets. The kids had to be quiet and had to be somber and serious. And so there was probably a sort of a hush over the city. No, no markets, no selling and buying, nobody pushing their carts that they were taking for the next day. Everybody in the city was preparing 
for that meal. They, had, they would see men possibly sitting outside their front doors, um, and the women were mostly in the kitchen doing the work of preparing. And it simply says in verse six, 17, or in verse 18, and as they were reclining at table and eating, he said. Encapsulated in that very short phrase is the last Passover meal. Thousands of years since the Exodus, the Jewish people had been celebrating, and Jesus brought that Passover meal to an end with this last meal. So this is what it would have looked like. I want to introduce to you um, a concept. Again, if you've had part in a Seder meal, you know potentially you've seen this. But over the centuries of Judaism, they had developed certain rituals which would help them to remember parts of the Seder meal. And one of them was four cups. So I have four cups with me today. And the four cups represented Exodus 6, 6 and 7 where it says, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. So the first cup, as they would pour it, was the cup they called Kiddush, and in Arabic that's the word Taqdis, if you know that word. I, I, I'm only going to translate probably that one word. Taqdis, it means to sanctify. So this was the cup of sanctification. And the master of the house who was the one inviting the others to eat, would pour the first cup. So it was wine mixed with water, half and half, and the cups were small. You wonder if people drink four cups of wine, you'd be feeling it, right? But it was mixed with water, and it wasn't a, it wasn't a lot. It was quite a bit, it was probably larger than these things we use. But they, he would pour the first cup, and he would pour a cup for each person at the table. And they would start the Lord's Supper with a blessing. So the first step was the blessing of the first cup. And the, the, the master of the house would say particular words to bless the first cup and to remind them of why they are gathering at the Passover. So they would all drink one cup together. At the time the, the first cup is drank, they would bring in the bread and the food, and they would set it around the table. At this time, they would have a second cup to drink. Ideally thought we would all do this around tables and do it together. I had the idea a little bit too late, and my spontaneity uh, wasn't, was, was too spontaneous. So we're just doing it here just so you could watch and get an idea. So he would pour the second cup of wine and water, and they would all drink it together. Before they would drink it, there was a time of question and answer. So Alex, you could go to the next, the next one if you want. The blessing of the first cup was called sanctification. It was to remember Exodus, in the Exodus account how God brought his people out and sanctified them, meaning he called them to himself, set them apart from all the other peoples of the earth. And then the, there was a question and answer. So the question was usually asked by a young child, because this meal was supposed to be education for every generation, that they would learn why we do this. And the child would ask this question, why is this night distinguished from all other nights with a special custom and food? And then the master of the house would 
respond and he would tell the biblical account of how God called Moses to lead his people out of Egypt, but Pharaoh did not want to let them go. God said, let my people go, and Pharaoh said, they will not go to worship their God. They will stay as slaves in Egypt after they had been slaves for 400 years. And he would tell the whole story of each of the plagues, of the water turning to blood, of the gnats and of the flies and of the frogs, of the night and of the hail and of the boils. And he would tell all of the, of all of the uh, plagues, and he'd get to the tenth, and he'd say, and this night is to remember the last plague, the one where the oldest of each home was to be killed. He would especially tell them the story of the lamb, that the lamb was supposed to be killed, and the blood of that lamb was supposed to be put on the door, above and on both sides, so that when God's angel of death were to come to each home, if it had the blood on the door, the angel would pass over that home and not kill the oldest of each family. In fact, the Egyptians as well could have done this, and some did take the blood of the lamb and put it on their doors, and their oldest was also saved. And he'd say that blood was the blood of the second cup, which they called the cup of blessing, and they would take that second cup. Before they took the second cup, they would sing the halal. The halal is what we started our service out with today, where we get our word hallelujah, which means praise to the Lord. If you could read Arabic that was on the other side, when David Michael read praise the Lord, the Arabic side said hallelujah. And so they would read the halal. Halal is six chapters in the Psalms, Psalm 113 to Psalm 118. They would read the first half of that before the drinking of the second cup and after the telling of the story of the Passover. So I've asked Kent to come, if you would, and read Psalm 113 to Psalm 115. There's three chapters. All of the reading of the halal will take seven minutes of our service today. And I know we're not used to paying attention for seven minutes of straight textual reading, but I think it's a good practice for us to focus our minds on God's Word and on someone just reading it to us. You can follow along in your Bibles if you like. I also invite you just to, to, to listen to God's Word as he reads these next three chapters of the Halal. hear the word of the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations and his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. When Israel went out from Egypt, the house of Jacob, from a people of strange language, Judah became his sanctuary, Israel his dominion, the sea looked and fled, 
Jordan turned back. The mountains skipped like rams, the hills like lambs. What ails you, O sea, that you flee? O Jordan, that you turn back. O mountains, that you skip like rams, O hills like lambs. Tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob, who turns the rock into a pool of water, the flint into a spring of water. Not us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory, for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but they do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both the small and the great. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of man. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. Thank you. Before that last word, praise the Lord, was hallelujah. The Hallel. So before they would take of the second cup, after the reading of the first half of the Hallel, they would pray and thank God. And this is called the cup of blessing. So let's pray today together. Father, we thank you for how you've blessed us among all peoples. We thank you that you have caused your face to shine upon us and given us peace. We thank you that when we were slaves that you made us free. We thank you for this meal that we are learning about today. We thank you that we, we can bless your name. Because we are blessed, we can overflow with praise and blessing back to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus would have said a prayer, and he would have lifted his cup and told his disciples, drink with me, and they would have drunk and ate the lamb and eaten the bitter herbs and the bread, and they would have begun to share the meal. And that's what happened at this moment in 14 when it says, and when it was evening, or in verse 18, it says, and they were reclining at table and eating. Mark makes it very short, because a lot of these traditions of the Jews are not traditions required of us today, but this helps us to put it in the historic context of what it means that they were reclining at table and eating. At that moment, after breaking the bread and drinking that second cup and beginning to eat, we're going to talk about what Jesus said in verse 20, or in verse 18, what he said. So, as they were eating, it says, Jesus said, and he's going to break the peace of their meal, the tradition of their meal, 
and he's going to say something shocking. And he says to them here in verse 18, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and say to him, one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. So our third section of this passage is when the betrayer eats with Jesus. So there's a few questions that come to mind. First of all, is why was Jesus so vague about who would be betraying him? When he said, one of you will betray me, why didn't he just say at that moment, just to ease all consciences and make everything clear, this guy right here is going to betray me? Why was he so vague about it? Well, I think there's a couple of possible reasons. First of all, this could have been his last compassionate act toward Judas. For three years, he had been sharing meals with Judas and walking along the road, and Judas had been stealing from the, the, um, the bag of offerings that they had been using this whole time, and of course, that was known by Jesus. It was potentially his last compassionate act to allow him to know that though nobody else sees you, God sees you, and knows that just last night, you were at the high priest Caiaphas's home with the other priests, conspiring for 30 pieces of silver to betray me. I think that's a very possible situation. The Bible doesn't tell us. I think what's most likely is that he was allowing every one of the disciples to check their hearts. As they each said, is it I, Lord? That seems like a strange response. The table, then, is an opportunity for all of us to check our hearts, to check our devotion to Christ. So Jesus said, one of you will betray me. So why did Jesus point out Judas with the symbol that he did? That's the second question. He says, he who dips the bread with me is the one who will betray me. You'll see that in verse 20. He said, it is one of the twelve who is dipping bread with me. The eating of bread and the dipping of the bread in particular out of a common bowl was a sign that Judas was a close companion. Judas was one who shared the meal with him, and in fact, he was one that shares in the bitter herbs of death that Jesus was about to experience. So he was eating these bitter herbs together with Jesus. And he says of this Judas that it would have been better for this man had he not been born. I had a very brief discussion even before the service with one of our college students who shared that a friend of his said, it seems very selfish of God to create humans when it would have been better if they had not been born. Jesus said it would have been better if Judas had not been born. So why? For what purpose? Would God allow Judas to be born had it been better for him to have not been born? Maybe you've had such times in your life where you thought it would have been better for me to not have been born. Um, I would like to read just a few verses. God was fulfilling a prophecy from Psalm 41, verses 9 through 12. 
And I'm just taking a portion of this. The whole Psalm 41 is a messianic psalm. It's a psalm about the Messiah. And it's particularly about the betrayal of the Messiah. So the Messiah needed to be betrayed by one of his close companions to fulfill what's written in Psalm 41. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up, that I may repay them. By this I know that you delight in me. My enemy will not shout and triumph over me, but you have upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. This was a song of David, which was a foreshadowing of the Messiah, who by a close friend would be betrayed, but the king, the Messiah king, would, it says, remain in the presence of God forever. So it would have been better for him not to have been born. This is uncomfortable, I think, for us. I would say this is the strongest statement, potentially, in all of the Bible about human responsibility. We have a lot of strong statements about God's sovereignty, that we talk about how God engineers and moves in, the, in the, all of the affairs of men, and how he is sovereign over every molecule. But a companion of sovereignty is man's responsibility. And this is the strongest, I think, of all statements about the consequences for our sin, the consequences of human choice. The question is not, would it have been better for him not to have been born, but who is to blame that it would have been better for him not to have been born? Romans 3, 5, and 8 tells us that a, very, a wicked person would say, how is it my fault if God, by my wickedness, accomplishes righteousness? I can't be blamed for that because God is using my wickedness to do good. And he said, how can God the answer of Paul is how can God judge the world in such a case? That man is responsible for his choice and for his sin, though God is sovereign over all of man's affairs. So what does this mean? It means that it is not just true of Judas that it would have been better that he had not been born, but it is true of every person who rejects the Messiah that it would have been better for him to have not been born because you think of his eternal end. I think we could all agree to go to hell forever that it would be better for the person never to have been born. So this is not just a statement about Judas. This is a statement about anyone who is not washed of his sin by the blood of the Lamb. For the believer, even what the enemy means for your evil, God is working it for your good. So as you see that some would conspire to even sell out and, and sell the, the creator of the world, to sell Christ, that God was working it out for the good of his people. So this meal that they were taking could not find its ultimate fulfillment without the betrayal of the Son of Man by Judas. This is a comfort to those who believe. It should be a terror to those who do not. The fourth point is we move past that. Um, the, Mark doesn't tell us this, but John points out that at this point, Judas gets up from the meal and he leaves. Jesus tells him, what you are going to do, do it quickly, and he leaves. If you read all of the accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it puts it together in a fuller picture. Mark is 
telling very short amounts of this. So Judas leaves the table. Judas shared and ate with Jesus of the first cup, and he drank with Jesus also of the second cup of blessing, but then he left. And he leaves Jesus with his disciples for the third cup. At this point, it says in verse 26, and as they sung a hymn, I'm sorry, in verse 22, and as they were eating, he took bread. So now we're going, we finished what is the last Passover, and we're entering into the first Lord's Supper in the history of Lord's Suppers, the one that Jesus started. In verse 22, it says, and as they were eating, the they that were eating were only the disciples minus Judas. It still, I think, is amazing to all of the readers, including you and me, that they didn't know it was Judas yet, but they had lived with him for three years and did not discern his heart when Jesus had, and they thought he was going out to buy the things necessary for the rest of the seven days of the Passover feast. And he left and left Jesus there with his 11 disciples. Now, I'm going to skip over the Lord's Supper quickly to talk about the disciples and who was left there because if you're a believer in Jesus, you're going to share this with me, and this is important for me and you to know, that this meal was not for those who would betray Jesus or not believe in Jesus. This meal is particularly for followers of Jesus. So what do we know about these followers of Jesus? Verses 26 through 31 shares with us the last interaction that Jesus had with his disciples before the cross. And and we're just going to read that together and then talk about it for a second. So if you have your Bibles, go with me to verse 26. It says, When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. So what do we know about the disciples? First of all, they're not deniers of Jesus, or they're not, let's say, they're they're not betrayers of Jesus, but they did all deny Jesus. We could call them that their, their sin was not the one of unbelief, but of weakness and fear while they believed. So the question I am left with is why the disciples deny Jesus? Why did people, 11 of them, who spent three years with Jesus, who were not necessarily, you know, weak men who just had office jobs and the worst they knew was a paper cut, these were tough guys. These were guys who had surely been in fights before and who had faced death, and you'd think that they could stand for Jesus in these last moments. So, no offense to any people who've suffered paper cuts in your office job this week. My apologies. But these were tough men. Why did all of these, you would think at least a couple of them would have said, you know, I'm going to die for this Jesus. I've seen him raise people from the dead. I will die with him. Why? Well, I've heard a few answers, and I think that the three best that I can find may all be true in their own way. First of all, They denied Jesus because it was written that they must deny Jesus. Jesus said here in verse 26 
that they, you will all deny me. And then he quoted Zechariah 13, 7, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will flee. So it was written that they must deny Jesus. So how does this happen? The, the Spirit of God pulled away from them any strength that he would give them to stand with and stand for Jesus. That is to say that they had, no human has any power to do anything without God. You know, the book, of Psalm, the book of Acts, Paul points out the fact that by God we move and breathe and have our being. That is to say that if any moment God does not continue to give you the power to breathe, you would immediately stop breathing. So it could very well be that God pulls back his, any strength he would have empowered the disciples to stand with him because it was written that they must deny him. Now the disciples in their arrogance think that there's some strength of themselves to not deny Jesus, and Peter, the first one, and then all of them like him said, we won't deny you. But of course that was only the foolish sort of arrogance that we humans so often have in thinking that we can do anything apart from God. So I think the first reason is because God wrote that they would, and then not that he caused them to to fall away and deny Jesus, but he simply pulls back any strength he would give them to stand, and they immediately denied the Savior. Second reason, and this is very possible, is they did not yet have the indwelling Holy Spirit. Um, He says in verse 26, uh, verse 20, I'm sorry, verse 28, but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. So Jesus, in his telling them they're going to deny him, tells them also that I will be rising from the dead and I will meet you in Galilee. And it was at that time, at his ascension, that he gave them the gift of the Holy Spirit. And each one of those same 11 men eventually did die for Christ. A third reason, then, I think, is that it was part of their spiritual formation. Isn't it true that it's part of your formation and mine to be overly confident in ourselves and then to fall because of some pain or some failure of our own in order to realize that we cannot and we need God? So this was a very necessary part of their spiritual formation. Uh, One English writer said that failure and pain is God's microphone to a deaf world. And I think this is definitely true of his deaf disciples, that he was allowing them to experience this as part of their spiritual formation. In fact, this would not be the last time Peter would fail and need someone to correct him about his failure. If you've read the book of Galatians, you know how Paul rebuked Peter. So what about you as you think about partaking in the Lord's Supper today? There may be times where you've fallen away from the Lord, where in your weakness you have denied him. By denying him, it's because of fear. This is different than betraying him. This is different than selling the Lord and not believing in him. But while believing in him, you've been afraid of other things and you've denied him. Um, Possibly this weakness of you has caused you to be far from the Lord for a period of time. Peter and and the others had scattered and they were far 
from the Lord. This table today is for you. This table is for weak followers of Jesus, not for perfect followers of Jesus. It's for those followers of Jesus who are in that cycle of spiritual maturity where you fail and God teaches you about your weakness and he helps you and corrects you and teaches you that he alone is your strength. So do you boast of your own strength for your future? Do not boast. God will bring you down just so you know him. Are you surrounded by people who think that they are strong? Or do you think, or they potentially think they are stronger than you? Some people I know, they come to church and they think this is a place for good people who have it all together and who look good and who never have anything that they share with anybody else of their own failures. And because of that, you think, I'm not worthy to come take of the Lord's Supper, potentially. The reality is that a church is not a place for perfect people, but a place for people who know that they are broken, that they are weak, and that they desperately need a Savior. And so this table is for you and me. So if you are a follower of Jesus, and you've been baptized in a church of like faith, we invite you to take of the Lord's Supper, regardless of your weakness. Now, if you say to the Lord, I love my sin more than you, and I'm going to continue in it, and I'm just going to use this as an excuse that I'm weak, then this is definitely not that kind of meal. This is for one of people who want with their hearts to follow Jesus. So the first meal and our last point starts, and we're going to go back to verse 22, knowing who it is that Jesus shared this with. Eleven guys were about to walk away from him. And he said this in verse 22. He says, and as they were eating, he took bread. And after blessing it, broke it. Now this was a normal part, and he would pour the third cup. The third cup was called the cup of redemption. So what they would do before they drink the third cup is they would sing the second part of the halal. This is chapters 16, 17, and 18. So for that, I've asked Lindsay to come. While she's reading this, if you're a follower of Jesus, whether you're a member of this church or not, if, you're, if you love the Lord Jesus and you, you feel yourself to be weak today, and you need him, and you want him, and you followed him, I want to invite you to come forward during the reading of this, these three psalms. And you can take a piece of the bread, and on the right we have grape juice, and on the left, wait, on your right we have wine, and on your left we have grape juice, and there's, it's labeled for you. You can choose whichever one you want. The disciples in Jesus' day, it was, wine was the common drink of the day. But I want to invite you to take one cup of the wine and one cup of the grape juice and just go back to your seat during the reading of this song. After that, we're going to read through what the Lord did to institute his supper, and we will take it as our communion together. If you're not a follower of Jesus, or you haven't made that decision to believe and follow Jesus, then you're a guest with us today, and you're very welcome. But this, this particular bread and wine is for those followers of Jesus Christ. So I want to invite Lindsay now to read, and as soon as she starts reading, I want to invite you quietly to get up and, and form two lines coming down through the middle and going to, the, to both sides and taking of the bread and the drink. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. 
because he inclined his ear to me. Therefore, I will call on him as long as I live. The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed even when I spoke. I am greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all mankind are liars. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. O Lord, I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people, in the courts of the house of the Lord, in your midst, O Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol him, all peoples. For great is his steadfast love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, his steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress I called to the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. 
Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Thank you, Lindsay. At this point in the meal, after they had read the second half of the Halal, Jesus does something different than has been done before. And he says, he lifts up the bread, and normally there would be a blessing read over the bread. And here's what the blessing says. It was supposed to be quoted by the leader of the feast in that home. This is the bread of affliction, which our fathers ate in the land of Egypt. Let everyone who hungers come and eat. Let everyone who is needy come and eat the Pasach, the Passover. But instead of saying that blessing and pointing backward to Egypt and the freedom from slavery of Egypt, Jesus picks up the bread and he says something new, something different, something that would end all Passovers and begin all Lord's suppers. And this is what he says. Instead of saying that, instead of inviting people to take the, the bread to remember the freedom from a land where they would be slaves once again, he says, this take, this is my body. It says that he blessed it and he broke it. And he says, this is my body. So if you've taken the bread with me today, he tells us in the book of John, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me, not remembering the lambs that came before in the Passover, but remembering the body, the body of Jesus that was ripped open, that his blood might come forth for you and me. He invites us to take it. So I'm going to pray a short prayer of blessing. Our Father, we thank you that this was done for us. We could never have come up with this plan or this idea. In fact, it was your grace acting from before the foundations of the world. And we thank you that when we were helpless, you came, were broken for us. Thank you for this bread by which we eat, by which we live. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus said, take, this is my body. At this point, it says Jesus, he took a cup. And Jesus poured potentially the third cup of the Passover meal. This cup was called the cup of redemption. And he poured a cup for each of his disciples that were sitting around the table with him. And this cup would look back again to the redemption from Israel of Israel from Egypt. As the blood of the lamb, it, it symbolized that blood of that lamb. And instead of mentioning the blood of the lamb, he again institutes a new meal with a new meaning. So he redefines the old meal and gives a new meal that's to be taken forever. And he says this in verse 23. He took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. This is the, that you hold in your, your hands, he says, is also to do in remembrance of him. He said, this is the blood of his covenant. 
It's important to know about the covenant that it's not a covenant that you make 50-50 with God. The covenants that God makes with man are his promises, that as we enter into them by faith, that he keeps them. And he seals it forever with the blood of the Lamb. It was John the Baptist, we call him, in, in the Quran he's called Yahya, who said, this is the Lamb of God. So this is Jesus, whose blood was intentionally poured for you and me. So let me thank the Lord for, for this cup today. Father, we thank you for this third cup of redemption, that you have redeemed us from all peoples, that you have, in the person of Jesus, called out for your name people from every tribe and tongue and language and called them into one body and into one communion, united by the redeeming blood of the Lamb, the Lamb of God. We thank you for that, and all solemnity, but also rejoicing. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you take and drink with me? Verse 25, we will conclude with today. Mark doesn't tell us this. This is what we know from history of the Jewish Passover feast. So he says in verse 4, I, truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So this fourth cup is called the cup of consummation. And as if potentially, I can only imagine that this is how it could have gone, that he held the fourth cup up, the one that they were supposed to conclude the meal with, the one that was supposed to be the last cup of the night, and he said, I will not drink of this again until the consummation in the kingdom. That is to say, until Jesus returns and we eat with him together and we drink with him together in that great marriage supper of the Lamb, he said, I will not drink of it again. So you have the four cups of the Passover meal, the cup of sanctification, the cup of blessing, the cup of redemption was the one that Jesus shared with us, and we all wait together with him on the last one, the cup of consummation, when Christ will return and we will together enjoy a meal. So to conclude, Jesus meant for this meal to be an invitation. The wonderful thing about meals is when you're invited to one, right? The coming of Jesus was meant to invite all nations to that great meal that God has prepared for us, where we eat of him, of what he has provided for us, of a, of a drink that will never make us thirsty, and of a food that will never allow us to be hungry. And if you've tasted of Jesus, not his literal body and blood, but if he, you have tasted of him and seen that he is good, you will know that he satisfies us to a deeper place than all of the appetites of this world could. In fact, God has created you with a divine appetite, meaning that none of the cars or the money or the men or the women or the food of this world, none of the things of this world can satisfy the appetite and the craving that he's given us, except this meal that he provides of himself, giving himself to us. 
and he has invited people from all nations, colors, tribes, tongues, and languages to, to share together in this great meal. The Bible says that in verse 22, or I'm sorry, in verse 26, and when they sung a hymn, they went out. So we're going to sing a couple songs to conclude. One is, I will wait for you. This song is about that fourth cup. It's about that cup of consummation, that we are waiting on our Savior. Um, and then the last one is, Jesus, thank you. It's the, the cup of Eucharist, the cup of thanksgiving. So Hannah, if you will do that, for I want to invite you all to stand with me. David Michael's going to come, Hannah's going to play, and we'll conclude our sermon with um, these last two songs and some reflection.